Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Fanzine Podcast. Just before we get started with the show, this is your host, Tony Fletcher. I want to invite you to sign up for the weekly newsletter over at tonyfletcher.substack.com. It'll give you updates on this podcast, my other podcast, all forms of recommendations with a midweek update, a long-form weekend read. Sign up is absolutely free. There are interview archives, uh, additional podcast features, and you will be able to to see uh, more of the fanzines that uh, we're talking about on this show. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. Thanks again. Now on with the pod. It's the fanzine. Fanzine. Podcast. I mean, the thing about a fanzine was holding it in your hand, right? and looking at the way it had been put together and the punk way it had been put together, quite quite frankly. And it had a staple in it, you know, and and that was, that is a fanzine, right? All right, welcome everybody to another episode of the Fanzine Podcast. And uh, as ever, I've got a couple of great people here with me. We do do some episodes one-on-one, but I really like it when I can do uh, more like a three-way conversation and have... Uh, have a bit of a more of a round table with it. And uh, I'm delighted as ever with the, the guests I've got on this particular show. And if they haven't been, if you haven't seen their names up front on the, uh, on the title of this particular show, and if you haven't looked at the logo, and if I haven't recorded a pre-intro, I'm going to let each of them introduce themselves and just tell you a little bit about the fanzine that they ran and then circle back around. And I'm going to ask... Uh, um the person whose name begins with an a to go first because the other one i'm still not quite sure which first name to use so rather than getting it wrong i'm going to let him do it for himself all right let's go who we got on the show this time around hi uh, i'm alistair mckay and my fanzine was called alternatives valium it was in edinburgh and aberdeen in the 1984 to i don't know 87 something like that and I subsequently did a book, a memoir, about the fanzine experience, kind of reliving it, also called Alternatives to Valium. And very, very good it is, too. Is that, it came out last year, is that right? Yeah, April last year, yeah. Yeah, April 22. I was uh, thrilled to read a copy, so we'll definitely be circling around to that. And my other guest. Hey, my name's Robert Hodgins. My fanzine was called uh, Ten Commandments. It was based in Glasgow, and it, I think it was probably 1980 to... 1982 when I, I started the band rather than doing a fanzine and given that you mentioned the band straight off you're obviously still very proud of it because you got a new <laughs> record out um a yeah. lot of people knew you as bobby didn't they because uh yeah kind of just uh where it, it went with the name of the band so the band is was is ongoing the, the bluebells yeah yeah the bluebells yes yeah and your uh your new album um is uh do you want to give the title i know it's got 21st century in it yeah it's called the, the bluebells in the 21st century and it's a very 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 good record we made it through thank you thanks a lot tony it, it genuinely is a very 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 good record and we'll circle back around to that so each of you um i mean alistair you were able to go from the fanzine to a career as a uh, as a journalist and not just a music journalist but maybe as a uh, profile writer as a certainly as a as a writer yeah. and uh robert bobby bob do you have a preference you obviously prefer robert but do yeah, you can no I, just on the fanzine it says robert but on on a when i mean bobby bluebell is kind of like became sort of like a joy ramon kind of like name so i'm i'm, I'm actually fine with any name to tell you the truth usually i get called sir 
All right, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's great is you both stayed in the world. You both stayed in music. And um, I have to ask you straight off, how well do you know each other? Well, we, we, we met for, way, yeah. We do, but we met physically for the first time last week, didn't we? So Yes, yeah. Alistair's reviewed us a few times in, in different uh, newspapers and things, and even think even his fanzine, actually, maybe before. But uh, Alistair's from a place called North Berwick, which I go to a lot for my holidays. And we have we have crossed paths, I would yeah. say, digi digitally quite a lot in the last few years, i.e. through Twitter and, and, and through reviews of the, of the Bluebells and things. Yeah, yeah. One one of the things I've really loved about doing this show is, is being able to connect even myself with people that um, I didn't physically be in, get in the same room with or had not been in the same room with for 30, 40 years. And I mean, Alistair, that you would be one of them um, because we have a history of jamming. And yeah, um, sure. yeah and I still don't know why I didn't really ex make a, a concerted effort to find you when I did the compendium. Um, I can't explain that except that we've been in touch now and all is great and uh, there seem to be good memories all around. And Robert, Bobby, I'm assuming that we met back in the days, but um, you were you, you were featured in jamming, but it was Pedro, my friend Pedro Romani. Yeah, Pedro. Was... Yeah, at that time I, I just moved out to London, so Pedro and, and Paolo Hewitt and Gary Crowley, yourself. I mean, I, I, I was kind of hanging about with that kind of like solid bond. You know, to say that a pop label that Paul Weller started, the, the, the studio was quite right next to the Columbia Hotel. So we all, we all kind of met up there, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely named a little triumvir of Pedro and Gary and uh, and, and Paolo. Well, um, yeah. But, you know, to jump back to the zine days, there's one thing, Alice, I need to, uh, I, it, unless you printed the wrong year on one of your zines, there one, one of the ones you sent me says spring 1983. So you must have started it earlier than 84. Did I say eighty-four? Yeah, eighty-three must. Eighty-three is the, the first one, I think. Yeah, right. Um, the dates were a little bit random though, because they just came out when they came out, and it was, you know, if they were in the shop, they were in the shop, so the years didn't really matter. Right. And that one, that first one, that first one, I like because I had an exclusive interview with the Cure in it, in which Robert Smith told me exclusively that the Cure was finished and split up and gone. <laughs> And I didn't publish it for about five months. So, you know, that's, that's how slowly things move. <laughs> I wish. I, and then I he changed can, his mind. So. I can only say that the same issue of jamming that uh, the Bluebells first appeared in, which was 1982, and the jam was still very much in force, so there was no solid bond yet. But um, that was the one with the Paul McCartney interview, and it took me about five, six months to, to print the first part of that and another year to print the second part. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's fancy. I'm going to come back around to that uh, Robert Smith interview, but perhaps going just slightly chronologically. I don't know if it's down to um, individual age, the year we were born, or, or something else, but uh, Bobby, you obviously started uh, your zine, The Ten Commandments, earlier than Alice there. So maybe I think I'll, I'm maybe... the oldest here, yeah. Yeah, well, maybe you can. You we can always work it out for ourselves if you want to tell us what year you were born in. But uh, you know, inspirations for a zine. Um, it's pretty evident if people listening overseas didn't already know that Edinburgh, Glasgow, Aberdeen, and indeed North Berwick are all in Scotland. Um, you know, we we we've got a couple of good. I'm glad to see the Scottish accents have survived, and um, your zines both exuded. 
um, a certain Scottishness because there was so much happening musically. So for you, um, Bobby, Robert, going, going yeah. first, publishing first, what was, what was your inspiration? My inspiration was um, other fanzines. I was, we were hanging about a place called uh, Brucey's Record Shop and they had a fanzine called uh, Fumes. It was the one that I, I, I recognised the address because I was from Govan and, and he was kind of like Paisley Road Toll. So I remember going up to his house and chapping his door like a complete stranger, like I used to do in those days, and asking him if I could do a fanzine. And he said to the letterbox, yeah, of course you can. And that was like the end of the, that was like the, end of the conversation. You and got then, permission. Like, well, I was hoping for a bit more advice than that. Do you know what I mean? You know, where basically I, I figured it out. You just had to photocopy paper. And then I got a job in an architect's office where they had a photocopier. So that gave me the inspiration. And then luckily I met, um, I became friends with a guy called Robert Sharp and his girlfriend, Kirsty McNeil. And, and they, they, they added a great impetus to the to the whole process. You know, Kirsty was a really good writer and Robert was a fantastic photographer. I'd already met a guy called... Uh, Harry Papadopoulos, who was, he was my friend from my, my neighbourhood, and we were going to a lot of gigs together, but he was working for sound, so I didn't think it was appropriate to ask him to supply pictures free, you know, but Robert was very kind enough to do that, you know. Right, and uh, Lindsay's name seems familiar. Did she end up writing for one of the weeklies? Enemy, yeah. 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 yeah, she ended up... What happened was... Um, we did a cover which had orange juice on the front, and after there was, we got a, a message from the enemy asking if we'd like to do an issue for them. You like, like edit it, you know, like take over the, the paper for a week, which was a great honour. Kirsty did all, all the writing. I was in a band at that point, and I didn't really want to do the fanzine anymore. Robert took the pictures, and it was Edwin Collins in the front cover with Claire Grogan. It's kind of a, an iconic cover now for, for, of the enemy, and then. Um, the cut, I remember, I think that the the Beam Me Up Scotty was the horrible headline. That, uh, <laughs> of, all, of all the things that they could have put on, the enemy could have put on as a headline, Beam, Beam Me Up Scotty was exactly what you wouldn't expect. Some, cause enemy, enemy was a fantastic paper then, you know, but Beam Me Up Scotty was the unfortunate headline they used for it. So. It It is. I was uh, just remembering as I was making notes for this, I was in pen pal contact with a fanzine out of Paisley called it Ticton Express exploded back in the day did you ever hear of that one yeah i, I didn't know them at all but paisley was like paisley was a big hub at that point well i think it might have been before that fanzine when it was a bungalow bar was glasgow had banned all kind of like anything to do with remotely punk or new wave gigs so we spent a lot of time in in um in the bungalow bar you know and the silver thread hotel you know which had great gigs on it but but it, that became paisley became kind of the hub really and then they had a kind of like a a kind of like mad punk scene with excess discharge of people like that in Defiant Pose and Haha Funny Polis EP, which uh, was very alien to, to Glaswegians as well, but very exciting as well. Yeah. Were you, did you consider yourself very much in the, uh, in, in the middle, in the centre of the uh, Glasgow scene? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, that that's the great thing about music and fanzines, after I'll probably tell you, 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 you kind of become this, Obviously, we're always the centre of our own universe, but when you've got a fanzine, you get into gigs for nothing. Bands accept you almost right away because you're interested in their music, you know. So, so I went from being on a periphery, like a shy, specky, duffel-coated guy, to hanging about with Simple Minds and all the images and orange juice within a very, very short space of time, you know. And did it feel like you were hanging out with cool bands or was it just these are the yeah. people on my scene? No, it was it was. Well, Orange just 
for me, came to the scene last because the original scene when I was, I'm just slightly older, probably the same age as Edwin and them, but the real scene in Glasgow was um, Simple Minds, who were called, just just been called themselves that at that point. Bruce's record store, all of the images as well were a big part of it. You know, postcard kind kind of came along. I think an hour issue number two, two and three. I think no three. They came along three and four. And before that, there wasn't really much mentioned. Aztec Camera were a band called the uh, Neutral Blue, and they were a kind of like a New Ordery kind of band, you know. So it, it, there wasn't a lot of bands in Glasgow, to be honest. There was, there was people like Restricted Code, but we were going through to Edinburgh a lot as well, and that seemed like a more vibrant scene with with Fast, which again was off the blocks first before Postcard as well, you know. So Fast had some; they had brilliant records, you know, and Edinburgh was a very exciting place at that time, much more exciting than Glasgow, to be honest, you know. Right. Well, you mentioned that as though at the beginning there that your fanzine were, was based in Edinburgh and Aberdeen, which are two cities reasonably far apart. But that's not where you're from, is it? No, well, I'm from North Berwick, but um, so I went to school in North Berwick. Then I went to university in Aberdeen and started the thing at the end of university in Aberdeen but then moved back to Edinburgh. So the address moved around. The address was often my brother's address. It was one of these things that you didn't know where you were going to be living, so you had, kind of had a postal address. But the scenes it covered really was probably more Edinburgh, really. It was turning into an Edinburgh fanzine towards the end. Right. Aberdeen was quite a thin kind of scene at that point. You, you, um, um, I mean, that gives us a, a really nice balance for conversation here. Edinburgh and Glasgow, you know, the two major cities in Scotland, not not physically, geographically far apart, but but different in, you know, very similar in that regard to Liverpool and Manchester being close geographically and culturally distinct. But I want to ask you a little bit about growing up in North Berwick. Um, I always took Berwick to be the city that's got a Scottish football team, but but is in England, um, and I visited. Berwick quite often. I, I have to admit, I had to look North Berwick up on the map when I started reading your book as there. And then I, I realized as, as uh, Robert just led on, it's, um, it's a place where a lot of people will, um, will take their holidays in, in Scotland. So yes, was it that kind of place? Nothing to do with Berwick. Yeah. Right. It, was a fading, it was a fading holiday resort in the 70s. It's very, it's very uh, booming now, but in the 70s, because of the foreign holidays suddenly coming in, North Berwick was on the slide. It was a Victorian uh, holiday resort favoured by royals and royal mistresses and stuff like that. So it was quite grand. But by the 70s, there was a big open-air swimming pool which was heated by oil. There was an oil crisis, so they're starting to close down the pool. The cinema got closed. So everything was kind of... People weren't going on holiday there anymore. So it was kind of... get You know, it was on the slides a bit... Um, People from other places in East Lothian, the county, would think you're very posh if you're from North Berwick. But actually, you know, the facilities were kind of disappearing. Although we did have a sports centre that was opened by Princess Margaret in about 1974. So that was a great excitement. Yeah, you're right. You you have a few chapters in the book that uh, talk about so-and-so was here and nobody noticed. Uh, who is it? Uh, Bridget Bardot was, was in North Berwick and nobody Bridget, noticed? Br yeah, Bridget Bardot made a film there two days in September, or that was yeah. that the terrorist film. I can't remember, but yeah, she made a film there, which is not a very notable film. But there's if you if you Google Bridget Bardot in North Berwick, there's absolutely beautiful pictures of her on the beach, and you go oh, there Cliff, she is in front of the bass. Yeah, Sea Cliff and the Bass Rock and everything, and the rocks we used to play on on the beach. And I'm like, well, why did nobody tell us there was this French film star in town? But we didn't know. It just 
I'm sure my dad must have known who Brigitte Bardot was, but he must have been working that day or something. <laughs> when you, when you, when, when you describe, <laughs> no, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, uh, you have another one about Rod Stewart, who you later meet up with. You, they're, they're two, your book is very much a book of two halves, very deliberately, side one, side two. And side one, you know, relates more probably to the you know, discussion we're having now. Um, the subtitle of your book is How Punk Rock Shaved the Shite Saved. Let me start that one again. Saved. <laughs> the subtitle to your book is How Punk Rock Saved a Shy Boy's Life. And it should yeah. be said, you do come across in those vignettes, those little stories you write as somebody very shy and insecure. Can you just talk a little about if that was indeed true? What was it about punk that saved you from that? Because judging by later interview techniques and questioning, you you definitely made up for lost time <laughs> well well there's two parts to that one is one is i i definitely was shy I, I did a book event when this book was launched and i'm not going to tell the story i told there because i started crying telling it which was something that's not in the book which illustrated how i really 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 was shy but the thing about punk was it was an external thing and you could go there's i can identify with this thing i can be this thing being being a lonely person, being a, a being the only one of my kind in this town doesn't matter because elsewhere there are other people who think like this, and I can identify with them. Um, but quite quickly, you know, my first attempt was to be in a band. So although I couldn't sing, I was the singer in the band, and that meant I found my voice quite literally. So so I used to write lyrics about how much I hated everyone else in the class and then invite them to a party and shout them at them, you know, and it's kind of not very positive. I know it's not a new optimism for the 80s, Tony, but it was... Uh, <laughs> but that was, that was my kind of shy person's excuse. But later on, um, to say, say how it developed, um, what I discovered is that if you're a shy person, you listen a lot and you're skilled at listening and you don't interrupt a lot, and in interviews, that's a really good skill. And the power of silence in an interview is immense. Like if somebody's in an interview situation, you ask them a question and they don't quite answer it. If you're prepared to wait it out, they'll say something else. So, so it's quite a good, it's actually a skill, you know. Shyness is a superpower in that way. Is this the point where I don't say anything? <laughs> yeah, I thought you left quite a long pause there. <laughs> you no, told them the secret. I'll just leave. <laughs> silence, silence is deadly on airwaves, unfortunately. Yeah. But I take I take your point on that. Um, I've interviewed a lot of people who stumble over their words, and I would have to learn halfway through that if I just sat back, they were trying to gather their thoughts, and they would finish that thought. Yeah. And so that yeah. is in, that is instructive. Uh, to me, this is all relevant about how punk saved somebody's life and why we ended up doing fanzines and, you know, the confidence it gave us. You've got a, a, a bunch of really cool vignettes in this first uh, half of your book. Um, and I think this might be the better order to do them in. It's actually the other way around from what they are. But you've got this Mrs. Turner, who's the music teacher, who just seems to have it in oh, for yeah. you. And... Uh, where what do we have we're lined up for the school show auditions for the school show and when it gets to me mrs turner looks worried then appalled yes alistair she says it's the chorus for you and it would be best if you just mouth the words do not attempt to make a noise exactly. <laughs> yeah this, exactly literally true 
And then, you know, that's the encouragement we would get at school, unfortunately. I don't know if your experience was similar to that, Bobby, but you've, you've got an earlier chapter, Career Opportunities Never Knock, and um, it's careers night at school, and you go and tell the careers, what is it, careers officer, I guess, I want to be a yeah, journalist. Yeah. And he promptly says, you're too intelligent. Journalism only requires five <laughs> O grades. You study yeah, at true. Napier College, you don't want to do that. So, that's so exactly you, you you're either too <laughs> stupid or too smart, right? Yeah, well, I, I, it's funny. I mean, I suppose journalism is a trade, and you could do it with five O grades. And they had they had higher ideas for me, but I wasn't interested in anything else. I, that's what I wanted to be. Um, but back then, it was very. I mean, it's still hard to get into, but it was impossible if you didn't know anybody. So that's actually fanzines got me into it eventually, just by doing it. And saying, well, I'll be stubborn enough to just have a go and keep going until I'm better at it. Right. Doing it so is that's, always. That's, yeah. That's yeah, the punk that's, rock that's attitude. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's the punk just rock do attitude. Do it yourself. Just do it yourself. So, was there, um, you mentioned, I think somewhere in the book, there was one failed effort of fanzine before Alternatives to Valium. Was that in North Berwick or was it once you got to university? That's quite a long story. There's actually three, but um, I did two, two crappy little ones at school, one in primary seven. So I would have been about 11 or 12 then, which was a hand-drawn one. Um, it's a revolutionary publishing concept, which somebody might want to revisit, where I drew them all one issue in felt pen and stuck all the pictures in and then rented it to the entire class for 2p a go. So that, there was only <laughs> one copy, but I made 60p. So that was all right. And then later on, I did another one, which was kind of on the way to being a fanzine when Xerox machines were slightly available at my friend's mum's office so she was able to do that later on though when i i was inspired by jungle land which was mike scott now of the water boys he did a fanzine in edinburgh which was really great and quite a broad kind of rock and roll fanzine like you'd have bruce springsteen patty smith and people like that in it so it wasn't pure punk as you could imagine maybe from mike um so that was an inspiration and I literally was too shy to talk to people so I wrote letters and I had this idea that if I wrote letters and people wrote back then I wouldn't have to talk to anybody um, I also had this weird principle that maybe artists always used to say well journalists are distorting our words you know they're getting in the way of our message so I would say okay what is it you want to say you can say it actually if you ask a, a musician that often they don't want to say anything because you know they wrote a song and that was what they wanted to say. So that that one fell. But Mike Scott did write back to me and answered lots of questions and uh, essentially gave me the first interview. So that was the encouragement that this could work. And that one was it was going to be called Fish Pie Talks um, at first, but uh, that was a misheard Captain Beefheart lyric. <laughs> but later on, later on, when I got onto it, it became Alternatives to Valium, inspired by Alternatives TV, the band, but... Right, um, but I, actually, taken it's taken from a headline in the Sunday Post about drug dependency. So, okay, okay, um, Bobby, I guess he, he uh, Alice's raised a couple of points. I know he he tried being in bands, but he he you know, he came down on the side of journalism. You've been on both those sides doing the fanzine, yeah, and then and then very very quickly being in the band. Did you see a uh, con a, 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 did you see a sort of divide between you know, fanzine journalists not understanding what the bands were about or did you see it as all being part of the same the same well, scene I just, 
the, the thing the thing if I hadn't met people like Chrissy Hines and Terry Halls and all that, Edwin, you know, people I'm, I'm interviewing for the fan scene, then that that was a big part of wanting to be in the band. I mean, I I, I, I was big friends with all of them, just like I said, but I, I didn't want to be in a band at that point. It wasn't until I met up, up with Honest just that I really thought, well, I, I want to be in a band now. You know what I mean? Because I was very taken with Orange Juice. It was like, a, I guess, a bit like Jonathan Richmond with Velvet Underground. I kind of went to every gig. I was friends with them. And then they lent me their equipment, so they all the images. My first gig ever was supporting all of the images, actually, at the bungalow bar. But then uh, and then Postcard was beginning to to uh, be a big deal. And and we were, we were luckily placed, the Bluebells, to get a lot of press attention, TV attention, radio attention, Right away, because we were just geographically in the same spot. We were part of kind of part of postcard and kind of like Plymouth Orange Juice and that's like camera in London and in Glasgow. So we 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 reaped the kind of like the whirlwind that um, that, that Glasgow was going through at the time. I think that the same thing. I'm, I'm quite pally with McCulloch, and he was saying the same thing about Liverpool. How Glasgow and Liverpool are kind of symbiotic, and Manchester and Edinburgh are kind of symbiotic, like you were mentioning before, because. Even just mentioning Captain Beefheart, that's not a kind of thing that, that Glasgow was very attracted to. We were more into, you know, 12 string guitars and Velvet Underground and I would yeah. say more, more melody, whereas they were into Discord, I think. And, 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 and the same with Ian and Liverpool. Liverpool's got a very big songwriting tradition, you know, because obviously the Beatles and all those all those bands. And we were very song-driven, whereas when I, when I remember going to see people like the Fire Engines or the Dirty Reds, as I were called them, it was very... Frantic and very nervy music. I loved it, but it was very um, uh, like certain resources. A good example of a, of a Manchester band that would, that could be an Edinburgh band, but it couldn't be a Glasgow band if you if you get you get my drift. Boots for dancing. It was a lot more sort of uh, James Chance and the Contortions kind of vibe going on. You know, as Zira because yeah, yeah. Edinburgh and, and Glasgow was still in love with the birds and you know people like that. So I, I think that's the kind of like. Um, Difference between the East Coast and West Coast, and, and the fanzines has Alistair's alluded to there too. We're very different. We were we we were totally into the art. I was totally into the art of the fanzine, i.e., graphically. And Robert was really into the photography and the writing. Of course, he did that too. And Kirsty was very into the writing. So we quickly um, gelled into into making a really good product. Because Alistair's already mentioned about. You know, I was quite into the idea of felt pens and sticking on pictures, but but we the three of us together gave it a certain professionalism, which I should I, 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 when we got to the last issue, it was more or less a magazine. It was very like zigzag, you know, yeah, yeah. which which is a big. We were very fond of zigzag, and and all of a sudden doors were opening for us to get into the music business, like you mentioned too, for Christy and the NME and Robert as a as a, a full time photographer, you know, for for uh, various. Journals at the time, a lot of music papers at the time, and then I was, I was fast, I was like fast tracked into into the to the record label stuff, you know. Luckily, yeah, yeah. Well, you're mentioning about the layout, and I've got uh, the scans, or actually, they're just pictures of the of the zines taken with your camera, yeah, yeah. Your, your, your phone, and sent to me. And uh, for example, the, the orange juice, um, which is a central group, I think, for both of you and for the story of uh, of Scottish pop music, um, whatever words we want to use, post-punk and that yeah. around that scene, that centre-page um, interview that's uh, written by Kirsty McNeil, it's really exquisitely laid out. I mean... Yeah, Ro it, Robert did that. Robert Sharp did that. It's beautiful. It's a really it great is. bit of work. 
It is. It's like I was uh, always in love with the work that Robin Richards did for jamming, um, which was mainly with, I mean, you could always tell when he'd done an entire spread or a, or a front cover as opposed to just maybe giving us some framework and then we would mess it up uh, internally. But it's, it's, it's got that, you know, its own distinct vibe. And there's also, and it might, I think it's in the same issue. You, you may know better than me. I think this one's got your initials at the bottom. It's a piece on Aztec camera. And yeah, it's laid one, out yeah. in a very three-dimensional way. Like it's um, the writings on the back wall of a room that is three-dimensional and somehow yeah. has a photo of the group and paintings on the walls. Is that Robert again? Oh, no, that, that, was, that was me. That, 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 I did that one. It's and uh, they, they were, they, yeah, we really, really, we really enjoyed doing that. I, I was, I did the design at college. That's what I got a degree in. And that's what I ended up doing for a while. I did, I do all this. I did a lot of sleeves as well for different bands you know, including their own. So as I'm saying earlier on, the design, Astor was more interested, I'm, I'm guessing from what you said, in the writing part of it, you know. Yeah, I, was, yeah. I was more interested in the design part and Robert was interested in photography and the design. I mean, Robert's pictures of orange juice are probably the best pictures of orange juice anyone's ever taken, I, I would say. It really captured a moment a moment in time, you know. And uh, again, it's, it's amazing how much those pictures, even the, the ones that took a buzz too, Helped us get a deal and helped us get because I remember I, I got a letter once from Nick Hayward and it just said Bobby Bluebell Glasgow more or less on it. He didn't know my dress and it was a picture that Robert <laughs> took of us doing a gig and it had a big guitar, a big Hoffman guitar, and on the letter it said, "You don't know me. I'm, I'm in a band called Here a Couple Hundred. We're we're going on tour. I really loved that picture of you with the guitar. Would you, do you want to support us? So that's how we that's how we got. That that was all, and they were the biggest band in Britain at the time. Do you know what I mean? Like here, they were huge. It was like the Beatles. So just because of a picture, we got you know picked to go and do this. It was a really exciting time for us, you know, a really really great tour as well. Well, so that it's just, it's just luck. yeah, that image thing. You know, I'm I'm really quite taken by your uh, that discussion with Ian McCulloch about Manchester, Liverpool, and then Glasgow and Edinburgh. But I, I, I'm also just thinking that certainly when it comes to, to you and to Postcard, I, you know, for those who don't know it, I feel like one of you two should just give us the very quick summary of Postcard because there was no shortage of Scottish bands, obviously. There was no shortage of yeah. fanzines, labels, but Postcard synthesized it to some extent. Yeah. It, 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 it became something. So does one of you want to give us like the two sentences of what postcard records was and why it was so important? Well, I think, I think they tapped into a, a Scottishness that had, that had been abandoned by music. Cause I mean, I used to be at school. I used to write down the majority, any Scottish band. I'd even pick people like Jeff Rattall and uh, Dire Straits just because they were and Ian Hunter who lived in Hamilton for a while. Cause there was no real Scottish heritage of, of moral, moral class music. There wasn't really a band that broke through, you know. And then Orange just came along and postcard, even though there were other bands before them. I think that they, they grasped, you know, the Sound of Young Scotland was obviously a very good, a very good steal from from Tamil Motown. I think the artwork by a girl called Krisha, who, who you know, all the little other little men in kilts was very attractive. I think the Orange just songs and the, the titles were very Scottish, Stimpy Thrilled Honey and The Old Eccentric and One Light, all those kind of titles were, were it, it gave it gave a focus, if, whereas this was a, even though it was all kind of based on American music, it gave a real Scottish tinge, if you get my drift, you know, like there was nothing that come along 
like it before, and I think it just—I just think that it was attractive to to the music press. I think they like coming to Glasgow. Glasgow's a really vibrant city, like New York was at the time, and it it, it wasn't tame. It had a bit of a bit of danger. Edinburgh, actually, I think is more dangerous than Glasgow, but uh, <laughs> but they but they Glasgow had an airport you could fly straight into. They could bring their expense accounts up. You know, we were all very charming guys, you know, and we we knew where to take them. So I think that's a big part of 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 the postcard thing. But the thing is, a postcard, I'm going to say quickly, but is it's funny to be a Glasgow label. They, they didn't have one Glasgow band, you know, it or just for Bears Den, just a K were Edinburgh, go betweens were Australian, you know, and Aztec camera up East Cobride. So there was the it's a strange, it's a great thing. You know, it it was more Scottish than it was. I know it's based in Glasgow, but even Alan, even Alan Horn was from from Saltcoats. You know the, the the real Scott Glasgow region music is simple minds, all the images, as you know. I mean, pastels. The people like all oh, pastels are based down too, but but you get there was a real different kind of music in Glasgow compared to 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 what they brought in. I think that was, and I, I think that really helped Glasgow that diversity. Right. Well, obviously, you did uh, hang a degree of. Uh, the Ten Commandments coattails. So, oh, so I'm mixing metaphors, but you you, yeah. you rode you rode with postcard, and as you say, it helped you and your own band. I mean, Aztec Camera are in there, Go Betweens are in there. Um, yeah. I love the Aztec Camera piece, Robert, because apart from the beautiful layout, I've got it. I've I, I wrote this part down. You say. Um, you do say, and you don't give uh, Roddy's age because he's all about 16 or 17 at the time, yeah. but you say it's fair to say they probably have the spark that will separate from them, them from the pack. And then a sentence later, you're saying, you know, sometimes they made me cry. Other times they bore me. And yeah, it is so he... fanzine. It is so fanzine <laughs> to just say that. You know, like, oh, it's here's the greatest band in the world. They were half and half at that point. They were they were moving into that Highland Hard Range phase with really beautiful songs, and they still had the kind of dirty Joy Division-y neutral blues songs. So it was a real. I was I was trying to encourage them, even when I spoke to them and I was friends with them. Camel's now actually in our band now. The bass player from Aztec Camera is actually in the Bluebells now. Hmm. I was trying to encourage, I was trying to in my, in my own fatherly way. Co- Keep going that direction, guys. Do you know what I mean? You know, I should, I should, they've been done anyway without any, any influence from anybody that were going to go that way, you know. All right. So, um, Alistair, bring you right back in on this. There's many entry points, but not least, um, you trail on one of your issue front covers, the last interview with Orange Juice. You, you know, clearly a really important band, probably more important than their sales ever reflected. Um, how important was Postcard to you over in Edinburgh? And during your university days, you know, what else was turning you on? Were there other fanzines? Was there indie labels we're not mentioning, etc.? Um, to me, Postcard, I think, was the single most important thing that happened. I mean, I totally loved Postcard. I loved Aztec Camera, Orange Juice and the Go-Betweens. I loved the Bluebells, too. I saw the Bluebells with those two bands at the nightclub in Edinburgh on one of these. They had big postcard, nights, of, yeah. postcard nights and and it was incredible. You know, it was just I remember there's a there's an orange juice cover where Edwin wears a pair of terrible shorts on it and he looks like the least cool person in the whole universe. And he's sort of inventing that sort of twee identity that became really big later. And I remember we were waiting for my brother, who was older than me, to come and meet us outside the playhouse where the nightclub was. And he came around the corner wearing a pair of shorts like Edwin. And he was like, oh, no. <laughs> 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 You've gone too far. 
<laughs> so that but, kind you know, of yeah. What else? Well, we my band, the commercials. We we actually idealized Glasgow. Bobby Cini sort of looked at Edinburgh. We looked at Glasgow and thought that was where the amazing stuff were, where it was. And a couple of the band were in college or university in Glasgow, so we played there a couple of times. And one day we went to the postcard flat because they they were in West Princess Street in Glasgow. That was the address on the records. So we knocked on the door with our demo tape and said, "Oh, can you play this?" and um, recollections vary about what, who was actually in the room. Some people say Edwin was there. I don't think he was. But Alan Horn, who ran the label, was there, and he put on the tape and looked as if he'd just swallowed a lemon for about <laughs> five minutes <laughs> and said, oh, you sound like the au pairs. And we knew that sounding like the au pairs was really not a postcard thing and that we should just make our excuses and go at this point. But, so that was, that was the end of that dream. But... Um, but no, Postcard, to me, Postcard had a, they told a story and they had an identity and they said, you can do the whole thing here and you can be brilliant here and you don't need to go to London. Obviously, Postcard did drive to London in, in an Austin Maxi and hand out records to John Peel and stuff like that. So they did go to London. But the notion that some people we know are the brilliant thing was just really empowering. So, So Postcard was the big thing. What other fanzines were there? In Aberdeen, there was a fanzine called Granite City, I remember, which was uh, quite early on. And I think Colin from later from The Shaman was involved in that. Ah. So that was, it was it was good to know there was a thing going on there. Um, I, I, might, I might get relationships wrong, but there was a woman called Morag, who he certainly knew, who ran a shop called New Life, which was a kind of new wave clothing shop. She made her own clothes. So they were like the hippest people in Aberdeen and they did the fanzine there. Uh, Jungle Land. There was others later on, like Slow Dazzle. I think I think that was in Glasgow. I'm not sure if Stephen Pastel was involved in that. If he uh, was, or, no, he was Jen, Jennifer, Jennifer Juniper. Juniper Juniper Berry. So that's what. Yeah, yeah. That's what it was. Yeah, they, but they were similar. They were kind of they were on that sort of post postcard, um, felt pen intimacy kind of thing, which which I liked. So it was Alan, a Alan, had, Alan had Alan had one too. Alan had one called Swankers. You know, and then yeah. me and Edwin had another one called Wobbly Bowls, but there was Born Yesterday and there was Sunset Gun. They were they were great fans. And John Dingwall did that, uh, Sunset Gun, and, and Jonathan Bernstein did uh, um, Born Yesterday. They were really well written and they both ended yeah. up in a career in journalism as well, you know. Right. And it was well, Hanging Around, Hanging Around as well, which was named after right. the Strangler song, which Ronnie Gurr, who became a very important AR man for record companies with Boy George and people like that. And the other person on that was John McTernan, who became an advisor to Tony Blair. So that's a John McTernan, yeah, good you. friend of ours. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. it's fair It's fair to say for so many people, and myself included, you know, your fanzine was, it, it was it was maybe the very first uh, evidence that you wanted to do something with your life, arguably creatively, but you just wanted to do something and you couldn't wait. <laughs> you kind of like had to get your words yeah. out. Um, you wanted to be part of something, you know, there's a bunch of reasons for doing it. We haven't really got into the nuts and bolts of doing the fancy. It's something I'd like to hit on with, with everybody because 
we're making this sound wonderfully glorious you're in the middle of the scenes everything seems like in the long run it kind of worked out for you blah 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 but doing a fanzine is not easy and it's certainly not meant to be easy i mean alistair you started it considerably later than some of us in life than some of us like if it was the yeah. end of university i'm assuming you mean around age 21 did you come up against uh, the you know the same kind of dilemmas that I came up against and Robert would have done early on printing and you know how did you sell it? How was somebody who didn't have confidence for a long time go about selling it? How easy was it to sell? Those kind of questions. Yeah, yeah. Well, strangely, I had a little bit of experience because I did a school magazine and we did a when I was in sixth year at school and. We did a dodgy deal there with a printer where he printed it at night much cheaper if we supplied the artwork. So, and we agreed to this without knowing how to do any artwork. So we quickly had to learn how to do paste up and all that. So I knew about paste up. And because I was at the tail end of university, I, was, I sort of hung around. There were no jobs. So I hung around at the end of university for a year in Aberdeen. But I knew there was a good printer there and that if I could take the paste up boards to him. He would print it. So the first one was really nicely printed. Um, I was probably in the last year of university when I did it, actually. But I, I kind of knew how to do it. So it was it was printed at a proper printer. Um, I had to learn to buy a new ribbon for my typewriter and stuff like that because it wasn't black enough, just things like that. It, you know, they tutted a lot and sort of went, well, I can fix it, son, but you'll have to do it better next time and all that. Um, after that, I was kind of getting printers and... There was a fanzine printer who did, uh, I can't remember, he was attached to one of the bigger fanzines who kind of screwed it up a bit. But um, various people came to me, like there was an artist called Les Clark who still does rock and roll artwork. He does a lot of T-Rex reissues and stuff. He came to me, he worked for the Evening Express. So he was able to do headlines on the Evening Express machines. So he would come in with properly typeset headlines and things like that. So there's lots of little cheats like that, which made it made it work. And selling it, well, the brilliant thing about selling it was you just needed one mention. I got mentions in jamming, for which I'm very grateful because we sold a whole load of copies in jamming from being in jamming. I got a mention in Record Mirror. Gary Crowley had a, mention, a thing in Record Mirror where he did fanzines occasionally. The side effect of that was he said, send your 30p postal orders to Jock Rocker, Alistair Mackay. And I got all these postal orders payable to Jock Rocker. So I had to take them to post. I had to go to the post office and say, "I am Jock Rocker." You know? <laughs> I am Jock Rocker, and I claim I claim my, my prize. Um, interestingly enough, I've got to I've got to like uh, do the interruption thing here because I went back to Pedro's piece about the bluebells, which is pretty much the year that you started your fanzine, Alistair. And he literally has written here, and I obviously didn't say uh, there might be you know, that, that we might want to not do this he's uh, he's mentioned about a modest interest in five jock rockers who go by the proud name of the bluebells <laughs> yeah. kind of pretty lazy of us down in uh in london well, i guess he was best mates with gary crowley so what are you going to say well, we were, the we were jock rockers all the time man. Yeah. there's a lot of uh, sweaty sock jokes made at the time you know that was a lot of that after was saying is true too we, we were lucky because we, we got a lot of um we got we got the face right away in our fanzine, and we got sound. A lot of fans, a lot of newspapers, promoted us very quickly early on, and then um, we had listen and which Oris just drummer Stephen worked in. We had all these with Bruce's, so they 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 took the fanzines and the fanzines. And the second issue, the third issue, so we had the 
uh, publicity is a flitch disc in it. So that that flew out of the window, you know. I mean, flew out the shops very, very quickly, you know. And they, a lot a lot of the bands were given us posters and badges to put in each issue. So that we we actually made money from the fanzine, you know, and, it, and the money was more than that it cost to print, you know, except the last issue, which we put all the money we'd made into making the last issue the beautiful thing that it is, you know, the glossy paper and the the staples in the right place, you know, and the and, and the the photographs printed very well, which is a big thing for Robert, you know, and the photographs do look fantastic in it. They they do, and I'm so glad that you mentioned the orange juice flexi disc because I have a note, and I was worried we'd miss our moment to reference it. I mean that's quite yeah. important. It wasn't. I was trying to check it. Was it their very first release, or had they been on put something out on no, first cup? It, 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 it was given away free with their first single, "Falling and Laughing." And when I met, I first met Orange Juice and Alan Horn when I was taking my fanzine into listen, or it might have been um, what's the lemon called around the corner. But uh, I think the blogs are listening, but, uh, and they were putting Fallen Laughing in the window. And I said, oh, I've got a fanzine, you know, right? <laughs> it was the first issue of Ten Commandments, or the second, I think it's the second one. So we kind of hit it off because I was dressed appropriately with a duffel coat on, et cetera, you know, in, in the nasty health classes. <laughs> and then we went back up to Postcard Records, and Alan said, look, we've got all these, all these flexi discs you know, left over, which are probably worth thousands of pounds. I mean, they're really rare. So he gave, he gave us all the ones that he had, hundreds of them. So we put them in free into the into the next fanzine, which was was a big big bonus, you know, for um, people buying it. Yeah, especially given how hip orange juice were. Um, I actually yeah. took a look on Discogs. It's fifteen pounds a pop. There's quite a few of them for sale. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, certainly if you had a thousand, it's probably ours. But but if, <laughs> the thing is, if 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 you got it with Falling and laughing, and the postcard with it, then that's a thousand pounds, and it's six hundred. Okay. You know, the original original version of Falling and Laughing with, with the flexi in it. Our the flexi on its own, yeah, is, is probably about that that price, yeah. In theory, it's a fanzine. That, that was the way I thought of it. It's like my fanzine updated. So, yeah. So it's got it's got the Robert Smith interview, but it's got the um the the piece that Mike Scott gave you, and I was hoping we might get you on with Mike Scott. Um, he did, he I, I saw him when he played in Woodstock last year, and um, I, I'd love to get him on this show. I really like Jungle Land my, myself. And you wrote to him, and you must have been provocative enough. That yeah, what he wrote back to you was really quite extensive uh, justification of what he's doing. And I think you got the same, a little bit less um, polite from Mark. Was it Mark Riley of the Fall that wrote back to you? Um, no, it's Stephen Hanley. Okay, Stephen Hanley. Marky Smith was very polite and nice and sent me artwork and stuff like that, which I was amazed by and unfortunately cut up. But anyway, but Stephen Hanley, the, the thing that I've got a letter from Stephen Hanley, which is very, very rude, but I can only imagine <laughs> what I wrote him, which just, it just makes me die a little bit. It's why, why, why was he provoked into that temper? It must have been me, you know. But yeah. you can see it actually in interviews that I, I had this, kind of puritanical street where I would try and find out that people were letting me down all the time, which was a sort of sign of the times that people, you were waiting for a sellout, so you were always picking at scabs. Like my interviews with Roddy Frame, I love Roddy Frame, but when you read what I say to Roddy Frame, I'm essentially accusing him of being a sellout all the time. And I'm thinking, no, shut up, you know? <laughs> 
<laughs> it's a young. very it's a very very 80s thing i i i i've, I've written uh, a fair bit about this not all of which has has, has come out and there was a, uh, and and robert you were very much at the center of this you know the what starts out as a postcard records independent label out of you know whatever kind of bedroom office becomes your band you know getting into a bidding war and opening for haircut 100 immediately and there was there was a lot that became then you know london centric again british bands started conquering america it was the thatcherite era and we were all meant to be selfish and so i think you know we uh, and and at the same time you got the miners strike going on and so the country's incredibly divided there's a civil war effectively going on at the pits with the police and a bombing, and, a bombing campaign as well bomb, I, I bombing campaign. yeah that that had not ended by any stretch whatsoever yeah. so there's a lot that's going on that makes um fanzine editors in particular you know want to be want to be spiky i guess from your perspective Alice, you know being able to maybe write in your early days provocative questions that you might not have said back at school when you were shy did get some really really interesting responses um because those pieces yeah, that you've got yeah. in your book are, are very fascinating by with the cure in particular but that's not really you're not really challenging robert smith so much he just comes out with this whole thing of the cures are spent for so i don't want to do it anymore and i'll never make another commercial record again because we made one it wasn't meant to come out as the cure and they release it as the cure so i'll never do a commercial record again <laughs> yeah yeah no that that whole cure incident is quite it just fell in my lap and i it if you compare to what would happen now, if I, if that happened today, you'd be straight online that night, and it would be a kind of big news story. I took six months, but I didn't even go there to interview <laughs> the cure. I, I went there to watch Riverside being made at the Riverside Studios, just because we wanted to see a telly program being made, and probably in our fantasy life get discovered and put on telly, even though we were the least telegenic people ever. But the band that was on was the Cure doing this ballet thing with the Royal Ballet, and um, they were amazing, but they were just there in the cafe. And I thought, well, you know, I better give it a go. Shuffled up and spoke to them and they said, fine. So I've, I've got some quite bad pictures of them. Got some great pictures of them playing live on TV, which for some reason I didn't put in the fanzine. Just my aesthetic sense must have been skew with. But I've got beautiful pictures of Robert Smith on the telly because he's well lit by the TV lights. Um, but yeah, he just he just poured it out and that was a moment i think in his band where they were finished in his head and that's why he was doing this weird ballet thing and nobody had asked him you know he just and he was asked my, yeah. my failure of that, that day was Susie sue was also wandering around but i was too scared to speak to her so he didn't get her you were not <laughs> he, joined, he, he joined her band didn't he they joined yeah. he, he played with Susie the man she's even in two with well, them. Yeah, well, Steve Severin was playing in The Cure that day as well. So Steve Severin was sitting next to him with a hat on. Yeah, I think Robert, but, Robert's yeah. story is when, um, when two of the Banshees uh, walked at the start of whatever, though, it might have even been the Scream Tour or the second album's tour. It, it was Aberdeen that actually happened in Aberdeen. Was it? Yeah, right. it was. was. Right. Yeah. Well, The Cure were opening, and so Robert stepped up. And then, but the point you're doing that interview with him, he's starting to make music with Steve Severin. He's about to go on tour as the Banshee's guitarist. Um, yeah. Susie Sue, uh, she, we had her once come into Limelight and do a signing session. She was wonderful and so friendly. But I got to tell you, even I balked at, like, I couldn't think of the idle words to just <laughs> go up and say. I, I, you know, I really couldn't. It was easier to say them to John Lydon than to say them to Susie. Uh, there's something. Just, yeah, there's something about that. Fierce. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, uh, yeah. so I don't I don't blame you on that one. A bunch of other great interviews you got in there. You got Lloyd Cole, a big substantial interview with Lloyd Cole. The one that's trailed as the last orange juice. I mean, did you know did you know at the time or did or did they just split up very soon after that interview? No, that that was a bit of a cheat. That was me learning journalism tricks. Now a guy just sent that in to me and said, I did this interview, do you want it? And I was like, Yeah, okay. And then they split up. And and so several oh, months later we put out <laughs> we we badged it up and stuck it out there. So fanzines were always meant to be provocative and meant to be the uh you know the shouty voice in the corner. I mean that's the nature of them. They're meant to be irreverent, all of that, all of that good yes. stuff. Um but you actually found a really good balance, Alistair, with uh, an interview with somebody that, that uh, Robert's already mentioned and who I've got, had a connection with over the years. That's Ian McCulloch, Becca and the Bunnymen. And that oh, yeah. interview doesn't make it into your book, but it's it you, you actually get him expressing himself very, very, very well because he's never been an easy interview and talking about sarcasm and, you know, putting people down if need be i think he does say something there like i'd never slag anybody off which but but whatever it's a really it's a good interview you must have been honing your skills at that point yeah well my girlfriend at the time jane was there with me doing that as well and she she liked uh ian mcculloch so he probably was a bit softened by having a nice woman yes. there as well i don't know but i, I think would help. On you. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I remember doing that i was in aberdeen and he said I was asking him about drugs and whether the bunny men took drugs and he said no 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 of course not and then he said we leave that to you two and I thought us two we don't take drugs <laughs> and I thought, oh no it means, it means you too <laughs> and he said so, um, we wouldn't take drugs man. <laughs> yeah it was obviously a, a bizarre joke from him yeah know? yeah it was because I'm very Christian <laughs> yeah, exactly what I <laughs> I, he, he actually, I've got the quote here. He actually says, I think slagging off is just some bitchy thing. Um, so that was, he's that was, it. he's so good at it, by the way. <laughs> he made it, in, he made off. it into an art form, but you survived that. I, I can't let us uh, go without extending beyond the fanzine period. Um, uh, your book has a lot of other interviews. I mean, people like Dolly Parton, Kate Moss, you know, you've moved into a certain, you know, profile world. But the thing that really got me, and you're going to have to tell a couple of minutes to elaborate on this, it it, it was probably even the time you were doing the fancy. Maybe maybe actually, I think you were representing one of the um, the Edinburgh newspapers. It's the Red Wedge uh, oh, yes. press conference where uh, Billy Bragg, who has pretty much put together the Red Wedge tour, um, has to physically restrain Paul Weller and Mick Talbot from jumping off whatever dais they're on and lunging at you for a question you dare ask. Can you can you walk us through this scenario? Well, yeah, I, I'm glad you asked about that. That's one of my favourite chapters because I, that was one of those things where I was able to find the tape and then hear the whole absurdity of the whole night. Um, but the thing about that was I worked for a community newspaper in Pilton, which is the area that was later famous in train spotting. So one of the poorer bits of Edinburgh. And there was a whole thing about representation of areas and positive representation of poorer areas and things like the festival, like Rudolf Nureyev should come to Pilton and perform here. He shouldn't be in fancy venues. So when I found out that, the red wedge thing was on and they would let us in that was great it was amazing we can talk to them and there they are um but i had just just this one thing that i didn't understand about red wedge which was that the only way you could join red wedge was to be a celebrity so i was like well 
how does that work? How can people, you're saying people should participate, but in order to participate, you're just saying consume something that a celebrity puts in front of you. So I found this, I, I wasn't being aggressive. I just wanted them to explain how that was logical. And it took me a long time to work up the courage to get the words out, but I did eventually. Um, and at that point, yeah, Merton Mick stood up and he was coming over the trestle table with Paul. And I can't remember, I can't remember who was going to punch me in the face, but one of them was. Um, but fortunately, Billy Bragg played the peacemaker and yanked them back. And so sort I of said, no, 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 we have to, we have to, you know, he's only asking a question kind of thing. Obviously, it would have been a better story if he had actually punched me. That would have been <laughs> a literal punchline. But <laughs> but I was quite shocked because how could I, you know, this nervous fella, produce that reaction? And it was like, sort of was the flaw of Red Wedge. You know, it was this kind of consciousness raising by celebrities. Um, the, other, the other thing about that night, which is in the piece, is somebody else was saying, why are there no women on the tour? And they were going, uh, there is a woman, she's just not here. Uh, can anyone find, where did the women go? You know, it's like that. It's it's like a, I put in, because I think it's like a microcosm of the arguments we have today about representation and being right on and so on. And it's much more, the rules, the rules are much more formed now about how you have to do things. But then it was, then it was all trade unions getting involved with pop music and trying to arrange it so that the committee agreed with it. And you can see all the terrible compromises. And I can well imagine that the artists like Paul Weller had to do things that made them uncomfortable and then front them up. So I've got sympathies that way. But in that moment, Paul Weller was my hero and there he was lunging towards me. It was a bit of a shocker. <laughs> so what was, your, what was your takeaway <laughs> from that? Because, I mean, to be to be quite blunt with you, he's got a history of it. <laughs> Has he? Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't. I didn't know that. I thought he was the sensitive guy who wrote English roads. You know, I thought. <laughs> but, but no, I mean, it's funny. I I wrote a piece in the community newspaper where I didn't mention it. It's like one of those things where you go, "That was so horrible. I better not. I better not refer to it." So I just wrote this puff piece for what happened, ignoring the fact that I just you know everything had contradicted it on the night <laughs> right but right. Uh, it still stands still stands with me as a kind of awful awful moment was that the only time you provoked somebody enough for them to uh to get close to hitting you no i had quite a few actually it was more when i used to write, when, when i used to write for the off. nme <laughs> when i wrote for the nme but that's kind of negative attitude that you have as an nme writer where you have to dismiss things I I feel like I had no filter and I, I wouldn't do it like this now, but I was young. And so what if I didn't like something, I just went for it. And often those were younger bands uh, who maybe weren't at a stage where they need to be totally dismissed, but I would just unload on them. It's, it's so there's a couple. No, I can understand can be, that. Uh... Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and you're just trying to make a joke, you know. But a couple of times bands... The Finney tribe who later became quite famous, and I've spoken to them since so this is okay. They I I was walking through Princess Street Gardens in Edinburgh and I'd slagged them off somewhat in the enemy, and I saw them walking towards me and they were quite forbidding looking guys, they all had shaved heads and everything like that. And, and they're walking towards me. I thought, oh no, it's the Finney tribe. 
<laughs> and then they stood in a circle. They stood in a circle around me and had a band meeting about what to do about this review. They were peaceable vegetarians, so they didn't hurt me, you know, but they let me know. But they've I... since told me they thought it was a fair review. So in the end, it was all right. You know. What was it you were saying there um, in the middle there, Bobby? You were, you were trying to get a point in on, uh, on Alistair. It didn't pick it up. I, I just say from being on both sides of it, and obviously Alistair was in the band before too, it, it, I, I know from, from Tom, Tom Ian and myself, Edwin, I, it, it's the reviews that really hurt. It's the, it's the, it's the papers. I, mean, I remember we worked with Elvis Costello, and he had, he had a book written by every person that slagged off Elvis Costello in the book, every journalist, and he was going to get them. And and, and he meant physically, uh, he, he's he's that strong guy, Elvis, you know, and he physically he was he was going to get them. And, and then usually and Boy George was the same. I, I know exactly who I'm going to get. I know exactly what, what their names are. If they come across me, they're getting it, you know. I mean, I don't know if he did it or not, but, but it just shows you, because it's like I, I, my favourite quote ever is actually by Sting. He said, if you slag off my songs, it's like saying my wife's ugly, you know? I've always thought that's a really honest, because obviously if you write a song, you love it, and if someone slags it off, you, it, it, it's it's going to be hurtful, you know? It's going to be, it's a hard yeah, one to take. What about, you know? the al- what about the album with the lutes on it, though? I mean, you can't. Well, yeah, but I mean, that. I didn't mean that. I don't mean I don't slag off things, <laughs> but, but I, I get his point, but I mean, I get his point in saying that, that you know, that they, they, they you put your heart and soul into it, you know what I mean? So any, you know, it's like we were talking a little bit about postcard and slagging each other off, right? That group of us can slag each other off, right? Because we're friends, right? And a family in a way, right? But no one else can do it. If, they, mm-hmm. if someone else comes into that circle, yeah, yeah. we all turn my, on my, I mean, yeah, you know? Yeah. My thing about it now is that when I look back at those reviews, I really don't like them because what's happening is I'm not articulate enough and clever enough about music to explain why I don't like it. So then you resort to kind of personal insults, and that's yeah. you've lost it at that point, yes. you know. Yeah. And it, I, that, but that, that that's how the music press was in those days, you know. It was. It was very. It was very direct and very. I mean, you got either great love from a, a journalist or really dismissed, yeah. you know. I think you hit on the key point there, Alistair. I mean, I would never have gotten away with any of that in the States. It, it simply wasn't allowed because um, yeah. uh, because it wasn't. And I think it gets back to me sort of making, you know, reiterating that point I made earlier. I think that you can, you know, sometimes we were all guilty of this to some extent, but I wrote very, very little for the mainstream music press and jamming did trade on it. You know, you mentioned it already. It's new optimism. And... Um, I think that there's a big difference between saying, you know, I feel thoroughly let down by this record because, you know, I love this band, blah, 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 as opposed to it often seemed, particularly with the enemy, that people would, the writers were trying to one up each other on who could be the snidiest and most dismissive. And, uh, you know, the stakes got pretty high and, and some of it is, is really, really, really nasty. And it's also wrong. I mean, some, sometimes factually wrong, you know, like, like, bands are dismissed that went on to have great careers and somebody thinks they're being very witty by dismissing that record and i think it, i don't think it stands the test of time so that's where i will always come down on the side of the fanzine um all of which is part of a really really interesting discussion to be had because obviously you know in your case alice you did make that that sort of transition over to to uh journalism we had a little um I, I mentioned you on the, my Substack, and then you you wrote something nice in response. And of course, I don't remember it, but apparently, I gave you a key piece of 
crit of critical advice back when you were first writing for jamming i think it's worth sharing well this is absolutely true i can't remember the band unfortunately but you agreed to let me interview a band which was amazing to be in jamming i think james brown actually told me to get in touch with you to write for jamming um because he slept on my floor when he was flogging attack on bazag once um anyway so i did and you said you, you can interview this band I think it might have been Alone Again or Who Became the Shaman, or it might have been APB, another Aberdeen band. And I went to see them, and I went up to speak to them, but I was, as I say, too shy. So I spoke to the drummer, not the singer, and I thought, well, I've interviewed the drummer now, I'll send that in. And you kindly wrote me a slightly disappointed note saying, essentially, don't settle for the drummer in future. And that's very good advice if you're a journalist, don't settle for the drummer, unless it's Keith Moon. Yeah, or Charlie Watts, or Charlie Watts. Yeah, yes. Neither of neither of whom will present that opportunity again. We're going to need to wrap up. I wanted to ask you both uh, what you peaked at sales wise, and when and what caused you to realise it was time to to cease publication. Uh, I mean, Bobby, you go first this time. I, I think we we did a thousand of of the last Ten Commandments, so that that I think that was our peak, which I think was a great achievement. To be honest, you know. Mm -hmm. And and uh, were you saying earlier it was just like your band was taking off? It was just things were happening. I mean, in terms of why you just, decided to it, stop it there, just that yeah, the, we were going to start to go on tour. Kirsty, Aldis just had all moved down. Well, Edwin had moved down to to London, and we were staying in Harry Harry Papdolsky's house in London. And Robert Sharp was moving down. Kirsty was moving down. So it was just that time. Just it was just outgrowing its 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 purpose. Jimmy fanzines. You know, I think I, I I don't know what the record for a fanzine would be, but I, but I think four's pretty pretty fourth division. <laughs> but, but I think I think it's actually five because one of the issues was was a double issue. But I, I think that it's run its run its course. It run its course. We it, it, I think we like I said before, we put all our money into the last issue to make it as as perfect as it could be. So. To do that again, I don't think we had the energy to go through all that again, you know, to, to, to do or to, to make that kind of investment, you know, we're too busy having a good time, you know. And for you, Alistair? Yeah, mine mine was selling a thousand at the end as well. And that last one, I don't have any copies of it. So I must literally have sold them wow. all. I, I think I've got one somewhere, which I occasionally find. But um, so that was that was doing amazing at the end. But that one, I did it when I was going to a place called the Unemployed Workers' Centre, and they were really enthused about it, but it got me a job in the community newspapers because somebody said, oh, this is really good. And uh, I think it's in the book. I, I had a job interview in this community newspaper where the qualification you needed was to have been unemployed for six months. And I'd been unemployed for 18 months, so I was overqualified <laughs> for the job. And, the, and the, the other candidate was an alcoholic who turned up drunk. So that's why I got that job, but I got it on the basis of the fanzine <laughs> and from... And from and from there, I was able to sort of see. Well, like I say, that that got me into the Red Wedge tour, and it was sort of like, oh, I can see, I can see the path a little bit. And it's then a I good got point. It's a good point, Alistair. It's a good yeah. point when you, yeah. you the path opens up in front of you, doesn't it? And you kind of think, all right, yeah. let's go for it. The unemployed workers' yeah, centre is about as nineteen eighties as it gets, I think. Yeah. Isn't isn't that yeah, what's I, the I word tautological? I mean, it's not tautological, is it? Have you, I guess you're a worker who is unemployed. They're, they're, they're stating that you are a worker, not yeah. yeah they were serious serious Marxists. These guys, but, uh, <laughs> Trotskyists. 
<laughs> yeah, I I want to write a novel called The Unemployed Workers Centre because I agree. I think it's a beautiful <laughs> phrase. So, yeah, it's all of that time, too. isn't it? Yeah, there's a yeah. certain there's a, got a certain ring to it, and. Um, you know, bringing you both back up to speed, uh, Alistair's book, Alternatives to Valium, how, a, how Punk Rock Saved the Shy Boy's Life. And your publisher is actually a Scottish publisher, is it not? Am I right on that? Yeah. Yeah. Polygon books. Yeah. 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 So very, uh, very Scottish and proud. And uh, the Bluebells uh, album, is that your third or fourth over the decades? Second or second uh, ever, only a second ever. Uh, Forty years between the la- that that recording and the last recording, so uh, so we were very prolific. But uh, we we're on a Glasgow label too called Last Night from Glasgow. Funny enough, and um, it's really changed the music scene up here. It's it's very vinyl based and. It's bringing out a lot of records and, and it's got big names on it now, you know, so it's all good. It's it's so much fun. I, I guess I was fooled by uh, the compilations on Spotify. I think. One yeah, there was compilations, that's right. Yeah, there was I've, a few of them coming out. Yeah, I did listen back to the first album after listening to the new one in the 21st century. And I, I really heard like that maturity, which you would hope for in songwriting and, and everything in 40 odd years. Um, I don't say, I mean, <laughs> yeah, you know, you hope I would say that. But um, it's it's fun making music again. I've been making music again. Um, and and it is, the, you know, the, 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 it, it's fun. It's fun to be like, you know, somewhere around 60 years old and turning out like indie records. It's really enjoyable. Yes. You have a great yeah. song on there. There's two that the titles jump at people one of them uh anybody could be a buzzcock i noticed you didn't write that the yeah, title, wrote that. yeah the title will jump out but i noticed you did write the following track the ballad of the bells um yeah and uh, i love that it's a story about a band about wanting you know to be bigger than you were and probably explaining the too much too soon i guess yeah yes yeah it's a really enjoyable song so uh, obviously people can find that as uh, probably more easily than they can find alan's a uh, physical copy of alan's book uh, alistair's book um yeah. but it's a it's a great book it's wonderful and this has been a really enjoyable conversation i mean to, to the extent that i've ever sort of like sat down and had proper conversations with either of you i think this is the longest probably so it's it's wonderful i love doing this well, show enjoy this it. Reason. and i must say i love alistair's book too that's how we reconnected it it was through north berwick and, and that book because uh, i love i actually Thank love you, the first book about north berwick north berwick especially all the color orange stuff and 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 knowing the pubs and the streets that he's talking about imagine them back then because as alistair said it's a very different town now you know it, it, it was quite revealing you know uh, thank you so much. I appreciate no, it. No I've got some black yeah. and white pictures from then where I used to take pictures for a project that never happened called North Berwick in Winter because I felt like it was a permanent winter when I was in my teenage years. You've like, got to do it. it You've got to bring that out. Bring that out. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a glorious tradition of wanting to escape where we came from and often circling back around your book ends with a chapter of circling back around and uh you know i do know that feeling so yeah, yeah this is good this is this is all good um so you know this show drops once a month um at some point i am definitely going to get overseas and at some point i'm going to get out of the uh the, the music uh zine world as well but I, I, it's just like the the candidates for the interviews and the fanzines just keep on coming so uh generally speaking this one drops in the uh in the middle of a month so just keep your eyes out for that you can find me at tonyfletcher.substack.com that's where my my regular updates are my newsletters my articles uh, alistair's on there as well and i'll, I'll be linking to uh, various uh the URLs, social media, in the show notes and on the Substack. So just free sign up over there. Thank you so much, Robert slash Bobby slash Bob.
Thank you, Alistair. <laughs> Thank you, Tony. And Alistair. this was a blast. Have yourself so a wonderful much. evening. Cheers. Do you want to buy a copy of Jamming?